Welcome to Objection to the Rule, your Sunday afternoon news hour on Radio Free Brooklyn. We are recording this episode on Friday, June 10th, 2022, and it will begin airing on Sunday, June 12th. My name is Reese Robinson, and I'm on air today with my co-hosts, Emily Scott and Jasmine Smith. How's it going, Emily? It is going. Uh, it always it always keeps rolling. I'm doing all right. Um, enjoying the, it's sort of summer weather, but it's like over here it's like about 85 every day, and I'm I'm like trying to settle in and get used to that before it gets like to 90 something every day because that's going to be a bit rougher than for me. Yeah, but I'm yeah. doing all right. Yeah. All right. Cool. Yeah. Over here it's uh you know 70s in in San Diego. I guess. Dang. I know, right? I guess it doesn't get like warm here until July mm-hmm. or I heard August is like preposterous. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> it's on we fire shall too. See. Yeah. Hopefully not. Yeah, too bad, I know, but... right? I hope it, it doesn't go crazy this yeah, year. Yeah. I don't know, girl. All right. And sending some love to Jasmine, who is not with us right now, but will definitely be contributing to today's show. Yes. All right. So for local news today. Uh, we are talking about human composting becoming legal in New York. For national news, we will have some updates about the Uvalde shooting and some info about some recent gun violence. For our world news segment, we will be revisiting a town in South Korea eight years after a tragedy. And for good news, we have some information about a new discovery to help vanish tumors in cancer patients. So we're going to go ahead and kick off today's first segment, which is the local news. Uh, This story comes from NewYorkOne.com's website, and I found it very interesting. The author is Anna Lucient Sterling, and um, yeah, let's just hop right into it. New Yorkers may soon be able to compost their loved ones' remains. The state legislature passed a bill earlier this month that would allow for human composting, adding New York to a list of only a handful of states that have voted to legalize the option. The process known as natural organic reduction, uses an above-ground container to accelerate the process of biological decomposition, turning human remains into soil. Advocates of the bill say that it is not only better for the environment, but more affordable than traditional burials. We're glad to be one of the first states in the country to do it, said Democratic State Senator Leroy Comrie, who represents southeastern Queens and sponsored the bill. This is an eco-friendly process compared to other options. Avi Small, a spokesperson for Governor Kathy Hochul, said the governor is reviewing the legislation. Washington, Oregon, Colorado, and Vermont have state laws allowing the process. Natural burials are generally described as a way to return the body to the earth without a traditional barrier hallmarks like embalming, concrete grave linings, and a headstone in a cemetery. That's a beautiful option, but it's a rural option most of the time. So for people who live in urban centers who do not have death care options that benefit the planet, composting humans is one way to do that, said Katrina Spade, founder of Recompost, a Washington-based funeral home specializing in human composting. Natural organic reduction, or human composting, allows city dwellers who don't have access to large expanses of land to take advantage of a greener burial, advocates like Spade said. In the organic process, the body is placed inside a vessel on a bed of wood chips. More wood chips are placed on top of the body, and in some cases, flowers are included when loved ones want to take part in the laying-in portion. 
we just had a laying in ceremony two weeks ago where we had like 43 people there helping to put the body into the vessel and then cover, cover it up. And then they had a big potluck dinner, said Walt Patrick, president of Hairland Forest, a forest cemetery in Washington. From there, the container is sealed airtight as the temperature and humidity inside the vessel is regularly monitored. The container is then rotated periodically over the course of several weeks as microbes begin the work of breaking down the remains. At Recompose, it takes about a month and a half to go from being human to being soil, Spade said. The process produces about a cubic yard of soil, which can come out, of about, come out to about 800 pounds of compost. Some families take a small portion of the compost. Recompose gives a 64-ounce sampling to each client and donate the rest to the com- com- concert conservation forest. In the case of a nonprofit cemetery, it might be that they have a lot of land that actually does need nutrients and biomass. So you can imagine a scenario where if families don't want the whole amount of the soil, they might donate it right back to a cemetery that did need it, Spade said. In Washington, the soil is tested by a third party to ensure there is no pathogens in the compost. The legislation calls for New York State's Division of Cemeteries to put together its own review process. Under the current bill, a person would be allowed to take the compost created from a loved one's remains and plant it on private land. It's not recommended for gardening or planting, Comrie said. You can put it anywhere that's a non-public place that is not something that is going to be reusable or something that people will be eating and drinking from. Unlike in other states like Washington, only cemeteries would be able to apply for a license with the state's division of cemeteries, Comrie said, leaving out funeral homes. That's why New York State Funeral Directors Association is opposed to the bill. Funeral directors have always essentially prided themselves as being very responsive, fully responsive, to what a person deserves from their own funeral and burial. However, they would like it. Randy McCullough, Deputy Executive Director of the organization, said, and we still want to do that with this process. We're not opposed to it at all, all the introduction of these alternative decomposition processes per se. The Catholic Church also opposed the bill. The New York State Catholic Conference is disappointed in the passage of the human composting legislation, Dennis Post, executive director of the New York State Catholic Conference. Simply put, we do not believe this process treats the human body with the dignity it deserves. It's a process that advocates believe could take some great some time to get used to by the general public, but could be an important option for those committed to decreasing the carbon footprint. So yeah, that is the article. Um, a lot of interesting feedback. I, you know, I, I have thought about this because I've thought about cultural practices in other countries where they do, may do something similar, maybe not for the same reason. But the idea of it being a viable option for people in urban centers um, is something to think about. What do you think? I think I think it's very interesting. So I actually, I was, I was at high school or college or something. You know, there I'd heard about this company that makes these mushroom suits that like for for bodies after they die, where um, it's sort of the same idea, where like your body gets broken down like that. Um, and then I think there's some cemeteries that like specialize in like you you get buried under a tree or something, so you become fertilizer for the tree. Um, and it's something that I think is really interesting to me because it's sort of that idea that like we're made of organic material. Right. And like, you know, for me, like, I, you know, and when it comes to afterlife stuff, like, I think the only thing that's guaranteed is that like, you know, the closest thing to reincarnation is if 
you get broken down and, and now you're, you're eaten up by a tree and now you're part of that tree, you know? Mm-hmm. So I think it's sort of beautiful in that sense on top of the fact that, yeah, like it probably does like reduce a carbon footprint, things like that. I think it, I think it does get complicated when it comes to like an urban center. Cause I know like historically like that is an issue, like bodies decomposing in like a really close center and yeah, I know. I remember in like I don't remember what class, but a, cl- a class in college, like I think an architectural uh, landscape architecture history class or something, talking about Paris, like had a really big like that's why the catacombs exist. I think is because yeah. like the cemeteries, like they ran out of space, and it was like a whole environmental, like toxic environmental issue. Um, hmm. so I think it's 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 kind of and spooky from that sense i'm I'm have you ever been into a catacomb yeah i went to the catacombs in paris once i was like yeah i was i went once yeah i was like really excited because i was like oh this will be so interesting and weird and i got down there and immediately was like i need to get the hell out of here like i (laughs) like really it like was some bad bad vibes down there in a way that i didn't expect because like i i'm not like uh superstitious I mean like I you know like I'm not gonna do a Ouija board just like why mess with what you don't know but it's like you know I didn't expect to immediately feel so bad down there I I visited catacombs when I went to Egypt and that was very different uh Mm. it did creep me out just a little bit but it was the way that they have um retained it after all of this time it was almost Mm -hmm. museum-ish Mm-hmm. You know, but it was also like there's certain things that you don't want to say or think about or do mm-hmm. in the presence of the dead that mm-hmm. I don't necessarily think I would consider in a uh, cemetery. Mm-hmm. So and that's just, you know, probably just because I'm used to it. But it was it was an interesting process. But anyway, back to the story. Yeah. I think <laughs> right, we went on a crazy tangent down below the earth. Um yeah. I, you know, I don't think this is a horrible thing. I know that in a lot of communities of color or communities that are, um, you know, who have financial difficulties, a lot of family members um, Mm -hmm. consecrate their family members. That's a way to alleviate some of that pressure. And they split it. They take it back to their uh, homelands. Uh, They do all different types of things. You know, with my grandmother, we spread her ashes on the river because she wanted Mm -hmm. them to follow us all wherever Mm -hmm. we went. Uh, My mother also does not want to go into the ground. Mm -hmm. So this is a really interesting um, opportunity. And it's something that just came to my mind. I wonder if this was pushed forward after COVID Mm -hmm. because there were bodies sitting in trucks, Mm -hmm. unfortunately, for who knows how long. Mm -hmm. And I think we had an example of why this is, you know, can be a viable cause in moments like that, because like, let's face it, how much landmass do we really have? Mm, that's really interesting. Yeah, no, it's true. And I mean, I, I think about like, I know in Jewish tradition, we don't embalm bodies. And we also, I'm pretty sure the tradition is you get buried in like a very like cheap, like thin wood, like pine box sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And I don't know exactly the reasoning for that, but in my mind, it is sort of that like from dust to dust thing, right? Like mm-hmm. you, you get absorbed back into the, into the earth and into the nature in that way. Yeah. Um. Yeah. Yeah. Which I agree with, I think, but 
I mean, it's interesting. Like, of course, the Catholic Church disagrees with it, you know. Right. Of course. Right. Yeah. Because, I mean, when you when you start talking about um, religious reasoning and, like, you know, religious views of, of human bodies, it's very different. It's going to be, mm-hmm. like, a very different – I mean, again, depending on the religion, I guess, but – and the um, location as well. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You're I learned a whole that, host of different ideas. Yeah. Exactly. Because of the burial practices that happen culturally all over the mm-hmm. world, you know, they're not all the same. And mm-hmm. I think what we've seen during COVID was a lot of people struggling to get their loved ones the way that they wanted to have them to bury them mm-hmm. or whatever, mm-hmm. for carrying out their wishes, you know, because of yeah. the circumstances were so extreme. Um, but yeah, just, you know, a lot of connected parts, but I definitely think, I hope we hear more about this and it's not one of those things that just happens and, you know, yeah, yeah. It's I'm an interesting concept. Yeah. I'm personally, I'm really glad to hear that they have like a third party organization that's entrusted with making sure there's no like diseases that yeah. could come from that. Cause I think that's a huge, that's a huge issue with like decomposing like yeah. organic matter in general is like, is there something that's like contagious about this? Yeah, and it can only be done, like, in private property and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah. And I know down south, well, I don't know, this may be a television show, and then we can go to break, <laughs> but um, there's this show called um, Queen Sugar, and it's about this family whose father owned a sugar plantation, I want to say it's in Louisiana, mm-hmm. um, and it's been about four or five seasons. They're about to release their final season. Mm-hmm. But What channel is it on? It's on the OWN network, the okay. Oprah network. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a really deep show about this family. And uh, they were all spread out. And then the father kind of passes. And they all have to come together to handle the sugar plantation. Mm-hmm. So they all handle it differently based on where, you know, how they feel about it. And they have to deal with, like, the local politics and local police and all that stuff. But mm-hmm. one of the things that came up in the show was that they found out that their mother's remains were buried on the land. Mm. And someone was trying to take the land from them. Mm. Uh, So it was this like huge fight the family had to do with this, you know, big family that owns like so much of this parish and come to find out the way around it. They were able to mark it as a historical um, location because there was other people planted on that same area. Mm-hmm. But they had to, you know, it was this whole debacle of them, you know, digging up land and all this stuff. But the reality is that there were more than just that one woman. Mm-hmm. Um, so they were able to conserve that portion of the plantation and not, and now you can't build on it at all. Mm-hmm. So it kind of just brings up that sort of thing where, you know, people will have their own personal memorials and they can do them within their families, within their regions, you know. I don't know. I'm trying to think of the positive reasons for this thing to work. Uh-huh. Yeah, no, I mean, definitely. Envi- I mean, I think they gave a bunch like environmental, I think. Um, and I guess it sounds like it's it's a more affordable option. I, yeah. I don't know if I heard it correctly. Yeah. Which is really yeah. interesting. I mean, caskets are very expensive. The whole process um, is expensive. Yeah. 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 Well, yeah. interesting story. Hopefully there's more to come from that. We're going to go ahead and fall into our first music break of the day. This song is called New, and it's by Ty Tribbett. We'll be right back. New, 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 everything new, 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 everything new. New, 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 everything new, 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 everything new. I'm ready to go. 
ready for more. I'm ready for new. Don't make it straight out the store. You already know. I'm ready to flow. I'm ready to move. The old is through. I'm in Papa's new bag. And it's still got the dance. So you know that it's new. Radio Free Brooklyn's mission is to provide a free and open platform to our community and promote media literacy, education, free expression, and public art. We rely primarily on donations from listeners like you. Every dollar helps us stay on the air and allows us to continue our work in the community. We are a 501c3 nonprofit organization, so all contributions are tax deductible. Please support with a monthly pledge or a one-time donation at RadioFreeBrooklyn.org slash donate. Welcome back to Objection to the Rule, your Sunday afternoon news hour on Radio Free Brooklyn. And now we'll have Jasmine up with our national news story. For national news this week, I'm going to do two things. I'm going to be reading a summary of um, what took place during the shooting at Robb Elementary School in Uvalde, Texas, back at the end of May. Um, there's a summary that was written up in the New York Times that I'll be sharing um, the majority of with you. I'm also going to be sharing with you um, information from a Time magazine article that was recently published about 
uh, mass shootings more generally uh, and gun violence in the U.S. more generally and the belief that it will probably get worse as the summer goes on. Uh, so first up, this is the summary of what happened um, on Tuesday, May 24th in Texas. A gunman killed 19 children and two teachers on Tuesday, May 24th at Robb Elementary School in Uvalde, Texas, a small city west of San Antonio. It was the deadliest school shooting since the murders at Sandy Hook Elementary School in Connecticut in 2012. The gunman was in the school for more than an hour. Officials said the gunman, Salvador Ramos, age 18, shot his grandmother in the face and left her wounded in her home before crashing a pickup truck through a barrier outside the school. The grandmother who survived contacted the police before she was taken to a hospital. Stephen C. McCraw, the director of the Texas Department of Public Safety, provided an updated timeline that diverged substantially from previous accounts and acknowledged that the police waited more than an hour to enter the connected classrooms where students were trapped after the shooting began. He said that most of the time that Mr. Ramos was at the, at the school, he was inside the classrooms, while as many as 19 police officers waited outside in a school hallway. Multiple people from inside the classrooms called 911, but the police, apparently believing that the gunman had barricaded himself and that, quote, there were no kids at risk, did not enter the classrooms until 78 minutes after the gunman had walked inside, Mr. McCross said. From the benefit of hindsight, where I'm sitting now, of course it was not the right decision, Mr. McCross said. It was the wrong decision, period. A Border Patrol tactical unit killed Mr. Ramos around 1 p.m., according to officials. Parents have questioned why it took so long for officers to breach the classrooms. The U.S. Justice Department said it would review the law enforcement response at the request of Uvalde's mayor, Don McLaughlin. State police said they had found no apparent motive or warning signs with no documented history of mental illness or criminal record. The shooting is one of the deadliest school attacks on record. It is also one of more than 200 mass shootings to have been recorded in the United States so far this year. Just 10 days earlier, a gunman fatally shot 10 people at a Buffalo grocery store. President Biden visited Uvalde on Sunday, June 5th, where he said his administration would take action to prevent another mass shooting but the White House has acknowledged there is little Mr. Biden can do without Congress. So I didn't read the entire summary for the sake of time, but if you would like to read the entire thing, that is from the June 7th issue of the New York Times. The title is What to Know About the School Shooting in Uvalde, Texas. Um, and I just wanted to take a moment uh, the same way that we did with the victims of the mass shooting that happened in the Buffalo supermarket. I'm going to read out the names and the ages of each of the victims. Um, McKenna Lee Elrod, age 10. Layla Salazar, aged 11. Miranda Mathis, also aged 11. Nevea Bravo, age 10. Jose Manuel Flores Jr., age 10. Xavier Lopez, age 10, 
Tess Marie Mata, age 10. Rogelio Torres, age 10. Eliana Eli Amaya Garcia, age 9. Eliana A. Torres, age 10. Annabelle Guadalupe Rodriguez, age 10. Jackie Cazares, age 9. Uzziah Garcia. JC Carmelo Luevanos, age 10. Maite Juliana Rodriguez, age 10. Jayla Nicole Silguero, age 10. Irma Garcia, age 48. Ava Mireles, age 44. Amerie Joe Garza, age 10. Alexandria Lexi Anaya Rubio, age 10. Alethea Ramirez, also age 10. Um, so I'm sure it's been in the news frequently. I'm sure everyone is aware of this horrible, horrible incident. And it's it's just so sad, even just seeing, you know, the how young they were, that their lives were cut short in such a horrible, awful way. Um, my heart goes out to all of the families of the victims. I know you know, I can't even begin to imagine what they're going through. Um, and I also wanted to point out that there were several parents who recorded this happening and, you know, have spoken to the news about the way that the police treated them when they were becoming frustrated that no one was going into the school and actually confronting the gunmen. Um, there's one very, very brave mother who has been on the news. She was on CBS Mornings with um, Gail King. Her name is Anjali Rose Gomez. She's a farm supervisor in the area, and she had two children that were in Robb Elementary School that day. She was getting frustrated with the police not being proactive to try to stop the gunman while this was happening, but she was able to jump a fence, get into the school, not only get her own two children out one at a time, but one of the classrooms that she entered to get her child, she was able to you know, confirm with the teacher that there was a path for her and the rest of the classroom to get out. So they were able to escape. Um, and Ms. Gomez, she was actually handcuffed and was told by law enforcement that if she were speaking publicly about what happened that day, she would be at risk of getting in trouble with the parole board because she does have, you know, some kind of history where she has been on parole. Um, and that's, you know, on top of just the horrific nature of what happened alone, the secondary tragedy or catastrophe is just the way the police response just seemed to be totally incompetent. And the blame game that's being played, the way that Governor Abbott was speaking during the press conference immediately after the shooting, in my opinion, was just disgusting. Um, there's always someone who wants to scapegoat mental illness and all these other things. But when you talk about why is it that someone is able to walk into a store and buy like these weapons that have only one purpose, which is to destroy life. You know, there's no real concern for how to actually protect like these children from this happening again. Unfortunately, 
the Uvalde happened shortly after there was the racist massacre in Buffalo. And then after Uvalde, there continued to be other mass shootings in the country. Um, so this is from Time Magazine. The title is 11 people were killed in 48 hours in mass shootings across America. It's likely to get worse. Uh, and this was written on June the 8th by Josiah Bates. So again, I'm not going to read the entire thing, but th these are um, important sections from that article for the sake of time. You're again free to read the entire thing and I would encourage you to do so. From Chattanooga, Tennessee to Philadelphia to Saginaw, Michigan, at least 11 people were killed while another 60 were injured in mass shootings during the first weekend in June. The Gun Violence Archive, which is a nonprofit that collects gun violence data in the country, defines a mass shooting as an incident where four or more victims are shot. So far, there have been 247 mass shootings this year and 13 over the weekend. There have been nearly 19,000 deaths as a result of firearms in the U.S., which includes more than 8,300 homicides as of June 6th. The vast majority of these gun deaths get little or no public attention. So um, the article goes on to point out that there's not just one gun violence problem in the country, there are actually four. Suicides, community gun violence, domestic gun violence, and mass shootings. Experts, community leaders, and activists have consistently pointed to the stress of the pandemic as being a driving force behind the surge in violence over the last two years. In addition, the social unrest that followed the murder of George Floyd led to divisions among those who want to reform, defund, or abolish the police and those who defend law enforcement at all costs. While defunding has not actually happened across the country, there is a belief among some community activists that police have taken a step back from their responsibilities as a result of the attention on police killings. However, there is some consensus on several steps that cities and communities can take right now to address the community gun violence problem. This includes things like identifying exactly where the violence happens, policing strategically, investing in anti-violence programs, and thoughtfully engaging with those who are at a high risk of engaging in violence. So, you know, there's been understandably, you know, when something happens within a school or you have a shooter that, you know, they've written out some type of a message about why they want to target a particular community, like those tend to be uh, the stories that garner the most media attention because they are so... Um, sensational and horrifying, but I do appreciate the fact that the Time Magazine article was emphasizing that, hey, like it's bigger than just the things that take over the headlines for days, weeks, sometimes months at a time. Like there's also just so much quotidian shooting and gun deaths that happen in this country that we have unfortunately as a society just become numb to. Um, and I know in the Times summary of what happened with Uvalde, they mentioned police saying that they didn't find anything in Salvador Ramos's history to indicate that he was a threat. 
However, like I do know it has come out that he was a misogynist, like he was aggressive with young women that he worked with, with young women online. He would threaten them and harass them. And that was a pattern of behavior that was not addressed. It wasn't taken seriously, which, you know, it's come up on the show before. That's often what happens. Like you'll see these types of, you know, violence against women, like some type of interpersonal violence or threatening of that before someone then decides to go out and lash out at some other group. Um, Also, if you are interested, also, I would recommend strongly um, listening to an episode of the podcast, Know Your Enemy. Um, There was an episode that is entitled Gun Power. And um, it includes an interview with author Patrick Blanchfield, where he discusses gun violence and America's commitment to a social order predicated on human disposability. Uh, He's also the author of a book called Gun Power, um, which was available on Verso beginning March 2020. Um, I thought that he does a very good job of explaining what the reason is for why like there's such a proliferation of weapons in this country, why that free access and free flow of guns is so staunchly defended, even though so many lives are cut short every year, because, you know, mostly his argument is that, you know, there's people who feel like making sure that white men in particular have the ability to liquidate certain people or certain groups at will is more important than protecting anyone's life. So even if that means you have children who are killed, you have all these other types of violence that occur outside of a mass shooting scenario that happen, you know, the the thinking is that, you know, that's an acceptable price to pay as long as you make sure that, you know, white men have access to these weapons and are able to force a certain type of hierarchy in American society. So again, that's the episode is entitled Gun Power on Know Your Enemy. We also had an interview that we did on the show on October the 3rd with NYU's Dr. Maurizio Porfiri. Um, who does a lot of uh, data-driven work around gun violence and what happens after um, a publicized instance of gun violence in the media. Uh, So I'll be sharing a link to that um, on our show pages for you to listen to. And um, yeah, it's just incredibly, incredibly sad um, what happened in Uvalde and I'll be keeping the families and the community in my thoughts for sure. And um, in the coming weeks, like as more information comes out about the police response or the lack of police response and what happens, like happened, we will definitely try to keep you updated. Thank you so much for that story, Jasmine. Um, Our heart goes out to everyone who has been affected uh, by gun violence in the past couple of weeks and forever. Uh, We're going to take ourselves into our next music break. This next song is called Black Eagle, and it's by Janet Jackson. We'll be right back. Once you know, you cannot know. Do you know about the Black Eagle? Let me tell you about the Black Eagle. 
can follow our social media accounts. We have an Instagram account and we also have a Facebook account. Our Facebook page can be found at facebook.com forward slash objection radio free BK. No spaces, no punctuation. Our Instagram account is at objection to the rule again no spaces no punctuation marks welcome back to objection to the rule on radio free brooklyn and emily you are up with our world news story all righty so this story comes from a june 8th new york times article by koei sang hun titled the country has moved on but their grief has no end eight years after the seawall ferry disaster took the lives of 250 south korean students Parents say they are still struggling to come to terms with the lessons the tragedy brought to bear. So I just want to note that this is a pretty intense story. So just as a warning to any listeners who that's not what they want to hear right now. Um, So the article explains, quote, his room remains as it was the day he left on a school trip in 2014, his bed still neatly arranged with the same pillow and blanket. The trophy he won in a piano competition stands proudly on a bookshelf. On his desk are his computer and cell phone, untouched next to some of his favorite snacks. Lee Ho-jin died eight years ago at the age of 16, one of 250 sophomore students whose lives were taken when the Seawall Ferry sank off the southwestern coast of South Korea on April 16, 2014. 
More than 300 people died that day, with all the students coming from Dan Juan High School in Ansan, a city just south of Seoul. South Koreans quickly rallied around the victims' families in the aftermath, united in their outrage. But South Korea's most traumatic peacetime disaster soon divided the country as critics vilified the family's quest for accountability and proper compensation as an anti-government campaign. Eight years later, pressured by time and daily life, much of the country has moved on while Ansan seems frozen in grief. To outsiders, the city may appear like any other in South Korea with its quiet neighborhoods and tall apartment buildings. In cafes, young couples discuss housing prices and the cost of raising children. But a closer look reveals the ways in which Ansan is serving as a memorial to the victims and still struggling to come to terms with the lessons the disaster brought to bear on the entire nation. Families in Ansan said that at least three parents have killed themselves after losing their children to the sinking. Some families have disintegrated in divorce. Others have moved away to grieve alone. Still others have bonded, have banded together to console each other, keeping their children's memories alive and help the nation understand the depths of their sacrifice. Uh, a memorial in the shape of a yellow whale now overlooks the playground of, Don, of Dan Juan High School. At the 4.16 uh, Memorial Classroom, a museum dedicated to the students, the victims' classrooms are recreated with desks, blackboards, and other furniture from the school. Visitors realize the enormity of the loss when the names of all 250 students and 11 teachers who drowned are recited at the end of a video presentation. Uh, quote, families talked about the visceral pain that follows them and how cities that undergo tragedies like Uvalde, Texas, carry the weight of a loss that only victims and relatives can truly understand. But parents also said they have learned there was no, there was no way to deal with calamity other than to live through the grief. You just have to cry when it's hard. There is no way around it, said Kim Mi, Oak, uh, Hojin's mother. No one, nothing can console you. She has refused to report her son's death to the government and continues to pay his monthly cell phone bill as if one day she might hear his voice on the other side. Quote, on the day the Seawall Ferry sank, live footage of the capsized boat slowly disappearing under the water was broadcast across South Korea. Fishermen and poorly equipped rescuers tried desperately to break windows and save passengers trapped inside. Cell phones salvaged from, salvaged from the wreckage showed videos of children frantically saying goodbye to their parents as the cold waves filled their cabins. The disaster has been born of greed and had been born of greed and negligence. The owner of, of the seawall had added extra berths, making the ferry top heavy. On its final voyage, it was carrying twice the legal limit of cargo, having dumped most of the ballast water that would have helped stabilize it. Regulators ruled the ship seaworthy, but when it made a sharp turn while fighting a strong current, it lost its balance. As it keeled over, its crew kept urging the passengers through the intercom to wait in their cabins. The first Coast Guard boat that arrived at the scene did little more than pick up the fleeing crew members, including the captain, Lee Jun Siok while passengers trapped inside banged on the windows and the ship slowly descended beneath the waves. The government initially told the nation that all the passengers had been rescued. Of the 476 people on board the seawall, only 172 were rescued. More than 150 regulators, crew members, ship inspectors, and officials from ferry and loading companies have been indicted for their roles in the disaster. South Korea tightened safety rules and made laws to crack down on corruption and companies that put profit ahead of safety. 
Ansan families called multiple called multiple rounds of government investigations a whitewash because they never properly investigated the role of official incompetence, and none of the top officials they had re- they held responsible have gone to prison. Angry parents ca- camped out in central Seoul, some on, week- on weeks-long hunger strikes, demanding a more thorough investigation. A new investigative panel is set to ra- is set to wrap up its work this month. But as the morning and investigations have carried on, helping to pre- uh, precipitate the ouster of then-President Park Geun-hye in 2017, many South Koreans, especially conservatives, have said they've had enough, accusing victims' families of holding the country hostage and angling for bigger compensation packages from the gov- government. People think it's over, and they wonder why we continue to protest, said Kim byung Kwon. 57, who left Ansan and moved to a new city and didn't tell his new neighbors that he had lost his daughter, Kim Bitnada, in the seawall disaster. But they don't understand that our pain is not healed and that nothing has changed. And that is where I'm going to leave that story. Um, I hadn't heard, I didn't know about the disa- that disaster. Um, and for such a huge death toll, I thought that was kind of crazy. Um that I just, it's just not something I remember hearing about at the time. On top of that, I think it's, it's a really interesting thing to be talking about when we're also dealing in the United States with, with so many stories of young school children losing their lives, um, in, in such horrific ways and the, and the way that it impacts a community and a family. And then on top of that, like the root of it, you know, um, Jasmine may have talked about this during the, her national story, but like is, is a lot of the times it's greed, right? Like the fire, mm-hmm. the, the firearms companies in the U S right. Like they're worried about their bottom line, the more guns that are out there that get bought, you know, the more money they mm-hmm. make all that stuff. Yeah. I didn't hear about this tragedy as well, but it is very timely uh, to have this story and also to consider like how this affects people globally. Um, you know, I, I don't have any children, but I can't imagine ever having to grieve my child for the rest of my life um, or a sibling or anything like that. I just think it's just such an awful tragedy that people have to remember the youth of someone who never made it because of all these reasons. But uh, definitely worth acknowledging that people hurt a lot from people's inconsistencies, the horrible reasoning to just put people through shit that they don't need to go through and people just carelessness, hatred and anger. Um, yeah, definitely a, a sad story, but I did like the way that it was crafted um, just because it, it took me there to something that I had not known about. So. Yeah. The author did a really good job. Again, that's Koei Sang Hoon writing for the New York times. Um, yeah. Like I think, all, so this was details of the way the community is still grieving and the individuals. And then, I mean, it's, it feels very similar to the U S right. Like where it said there's, there's some people, mostly conservatives that are like, why aren't you over this yet? Which is crazy. Cause it's like this yeah. stuff like this, like you never get over. Right. Right. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, well, thank you for that story. And I have the pleasure of bringing you guys the good news this week. Um, this story comes from theweek.com. And uh, the title of the article is Participants in Small Experimental Cancer Drug Trial See Tumors Vanish. 
it was posted in the Washington Post. I don't see the actual uh, author here. All 14 participants of a recent experimental drug trial saw their colorectal cancer vanish, researchers revealed in a new study published Sunday in the New England Journal of Medicine. The results are astonishing, and while researchers caution that they need to be replicated in other trials, this is still leaving patients and healthcare providers hopeful. I don't think anyone has seen this before, where every single patient has had the tumor disappear. Andrea Sarek, an oncologist at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center in New York and lead author of the study, told the Washington Post, the patients had all been recently diagnosed with early stage rectal cancer, had mismatched repair deficiency, and had not yet received any treatment. As part of the trial, they were giving nine doses of a drug called intravenous dostoliumib, which is designed to block specific cancer cell protein. The participants did not report any major complications from the drugs, and six months later, their scans, biopsies, and physical exams showed no sign of cancer. All 14 patients, the odds are exceedingly low and really unheard of in oncology, Sarek said. Oh, I just got chills um, <laughs> thinking about, you know, us getting closer to um, curing cancer and any long term terminal illness. Um, definitely something I think we all want to hear more about these medical updates mm-hmm. that come. I feel like in the last two years, because of obvious reasons, um, you know, the medical community has been through so much and mm-hmm. we are not hearing positive stories about new science and and new technology and new mm-hmm. innovation. So this story really spoke to me um, just because it's nice to know that, you know, things are still shifting in a positive direction, whether mm-hmm. we can see it or not. Yeah, that's awesome. I, I hadn't heard about that. And I mean, I think the impact of it really sank in when you said that the oncologist who led this study, like had it's unheard of essentially for, for every single patient to respond to a treatment like that like that's yeah. beautiful <laughs> I know it's right incredible. it's like wow like yeah. people are still out here saving lives thank God for that because God knows we need yeah. angels <laughs> walking this earth yeah. so um, shout out yeah. to all the people who are working on this project and all the participants in this study wishing you the best of health and and uh, very happy mm-hmm. that you are getting a portion of your life back Mm -hmm. All right. So we did it. That's it for this week's episode Mm -hmm. of Objection to the Rule. Thank you so much for listening. You can catch all our older episodes on RadioFreeBrooklyn.org or on the Radio Free Brooklyn app or on Spotify. Uh, Listen up for more independent Brooklyn media. I'm going to throw out our final track of the day. It's by one of my favorite jazz bands, Snarky Puppy. Just found this song this morning and it's it's got so it's so dynamic when you get a chance to listen to the whole thing. It's called Trinity. We will see you all next week. Bye. Bye.
If you'd like to listen to Radio Free Brooklyn when you're not in front of your computer, please download our free mobile app for iPhone and Android, available in the App Store for iPhone or the Google Play Store for Android. Also, please be sure to subscribe to our monthly newsletter for the latest news about new programming and upcoming Radio Free Brooklyn events. You can sign up at radiofreebrooklyn.org forward slash newsletter.